You're listening to episode 51 of the Journey to Launch podcast. I'm answering some of your questions in this Q&A episode. Welcome to the Journey to Launch podcast with your host, Jamila Souffrant. As a money expert who walks her talk, she helps brave journeyers like you get out of debt, save, invest, and build real wealth. Join her on the journey to launch to financial freedom in, in five, four, three, two, one. Hey, journeyers. Welcome back to another episode of the Journey to Launch podcast. We are at episode 51. And this episode is going to be a little bit different than any episode I've done before because I'm just strictly doing a Q&A episode. So I am here answering your questions. A couple of weeks ago, I asked on Instagram and in my Facebook group if anyone had questions. I was doing a Q&A episode and I wanted to know what you guys wanted to know, what I could answer for you. So I've gathered up a few questions that I'd like to answer. Before we get into the episode, just if you want the episode show notes for this, you can go to journeytolaunch.com slash episode 51. As always, I appreciate you. Thank you for listening. If this is your first time and you're looking for a more deep dive of a certain topic, I encourage you to, after listening to this, you look at any of the other podcast episodes I've had. There have been 50 so far. If you are returning, thank you so much for coming back. Listening to this in Apple Podcasts, that's that purple app on your iPhone. Please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps other people find the podcast. It somehow helps visibility, I believe. I And it just, I appreciate it. I appreciate reading every review because one, I know it takes a bit of time, maybe, you know, a minute, if that, for someone to do that, for you to take time out of your day to leave a review and really tell me your thoughts about the podcast. So when you do that, I know you really appreciate everything that I'm doing to bring financial independence and freedom to you. So it's just a show of appreciation and I really, really um, love reading every review. If you don't listen to this in Apple Podcasts, that's totally fine. You know, you can find this anywhere. You can find this on your Android phone. You can also find it on Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, Google Play, you name it. It's everywhere. So again, if you want to share this with anyone, you can actually just direct them to journeytolaunch.com slash podcast there. That's my website. They can listen on that or you be able to see the links in which you can find the other places to listen to the podcast. If you want to connect, connect with me on social media at journey to launch. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as journey to launch. And then you can join the private Facebook group at journey to launch.com slash community, or go to Facebook and type in journey to launch. We have a bunch of questions. Some of them are dealing with 401k contributions. Another is dealing with getting over fear. How do you get over the fear of inaction and action? Like, how do you go forward? There was a question on when is it the right time to get a financial advisor and so much more. So I'm going to try and get through as many of these questions as possible. And then depending on the feedback for this episode, if you guys like this format, I'll do another one in the near future. Okay, so let's hop right in. So this first question comes from Paulette. She's in the Facebook group. 
and she wants to know how do employer contributions work for 401k? So Paulette and anyone who else wants to know this answer to this, in order to help incentivize you to contribute to your company sponsored 401k plan, your employer will offer you a contribution match. So for example, if your company offers you a 4% match, they'll match dollar for dollar up to 4% of what you contribute to your account. If you contribute 3%, they'll also contribute 3% to your plan. And if you contribute 4%, they'll contribute 4%. Because remember, they are going to contribute up to 4%. If you contribute more than 4%, so say you contribute 6%, they'll still only contribute up to that 4% as that is their maximum contribution match. While this may sound like a generous and selfless act by your employer, do not be fooled. Your company benefits from this matching too because they get tax deductions for matching your contributions. Also, this does serve as a way for the employer to reduce employee turnover. So they also do something called vesting, which is another thing if you do have employer contributions, you want to just make sure you understand what your company's policy is for vesting. Regardless of whatever your company's motivation is, whether it's selfless or selfish, <laughs> it doesn't really matter. It's recommended. Anyone would recommend this. I recommend this. You invest up to at least your company match because it's quote unquote free money. And it's really not free money because when they look at your total compensation package, they are factoring in 401k match contribution. So they're looking at their match as part of your compensation. So by you not taking advantage of it, it's almost like throwing away free money, but it's really something that you deserve to have because it's part of your compensation package. So the thing about being vested, what being vested means is that, okay, let's, for example, let's, let's do the example first and then I explain what, and what being vested means. If you contribute money to your 401k, that's your money. Your, your personal money in your 401k, that's your money. If you decide to leave your company at any time, you can transfer those contributions to another qualifying plan, no matter how long you've had those funds in that 401k account. On the other hand, any money that your employer contributes to your plan usually requires you to work for a certain amount of time. So it could be a year, it could be six months, Every employer is different. So they might require that you work a certain amount of time before the money that they contribute becomes yours. And that is what it means to be vested. So you want to make sure you're fully vested before you leave your company, if that's the case. Now, if you want to leave your company regardless, if you you know don't care about taking that money, that's fine. But what you don't want to do is assume that all the money in the 401k account is yours and it's not. Make sure you understand if you are vested and that way you can take your employer contributions with you when you leave the company and roll all that into a new plan. Next question is from Rachel. Rachel is also in the Facebook group. She asked, how do you get over the fear of action, the fear of getting it all wrong? You know, how do you progress? How do you make progress when you're spinning your wheels? There's so much education out there. This is actually a continuation of her question. So I think this is actually a really good one because this actually holds a lot of people back. The inability to act. It's called analysis paralysis, where you analyze everything to the 
to the period on the sentence. <laughs> I've, I do this sometimes. I've definitely done it in the past where instead of making a decision, I just sit there and do nothing. And actually it's interesting because even if you don't make a decision, that's actually making a decision. So for every choice you refuse to make or you're scared to make, that means you're making a choice not to do anything. So when it comes to money, I'm gonna assume maybe that it means investing because that's one of the things that most people are afraid of is investing and where do they put their money they don't want to lose it in any sort of market crash or a failed investment so there are a couple things that we're going to get into how you can help alleviate that fear but first is to understand why it is you're fearing whatever it is you're fearing so I actually wrote a blog post about four things for money problems and I'll link that in the show notes and I think two of the problems actually apply to this fear of action One is a knowledge problem. So do you have a knowledge problem, meaning you do not know what to do or how to proceed with fixing your financial issues or how to move forward with whatever it is decision you're trying to make financially? This particular problem keeps you stuck and afraid to make decisions. How to fix a knowledge problem? You ask questions and you seek answers and be willing to try new methods. So what does that mean? You're not afraid to ask the questions because a lot of the time we don't know what we don't know. So one, you don't even know what questions you need to ask. But in the case where a question pops up in your head because you just do not understand, ask whoever that is. So whether that is your bank teller, your 401k provider, your employer, a friend, you ask questions, your, your ability to seek out knowledge and to not be embarrassed by not knowing is extremely important. I would say the people who are afraid to speak up and ask questions are usually crippled in not increasing their knowledge set. And then therefore they never get ahead because they're never admitting that they don't know anything. So the knowledge problem will keep you stuck, but it doesn't have to keep you stuck forever. You acknowledge that you have a problem with knowing that you don't know something and then you move forward by asking questions and then seeking out resources. So if you're listening to this podcast, you're more than likely you are on the right path because you're seeking out resources. You are actively trying to better your standing and what you know. So good job on that. And be patient with yourself. You know, you're not going to be able to learn everything at once. It's okay to not get it all. You never get it all. I don't know it all. I don't always get it all. So that's okay. The other problem might be a confidence problem. So you might even understand that like you know what to do. You have the knowledge to know what to do and you still don't do it because you're just not confident in what you know. You know, so that is actually it's a more subtle problem because it's harder to recognize and admit to yourself. But again, that confidence problem You can alleviate that by making small steps over time. So think to yourself, okay, if I want to start investing more, but I don't know the right account, I don't want to lose the money or, you know, okay, how can you, how can you make progress to the bigger goal that you have? So maybe you don't invest all $30,000. Let's just say you had $30,000 to invest, right? And you did not want to put all that money in the market because you're afraid. Then maybe you end up putting 
$500. You start out with $1,000. You start out smaller and smaller increments. And if that's too big for you, $20, $30. You start because just making that first step will then open the door and increase your confidence level to take the next step. Another thing with the confidence problem is ask yourself, what's the worst that can happen? So this relates to just now you are afraid to make a decision, right? So the best thing to do in that case is think what's the worst that can happen if you make a mistake. Remember, nothing is life or death in this situation. Now we are talking about money and it might feel like it can be life or death, but think about it. Think about the worst thing that can happen if you make a mistake. So maybe it is you lose all your money, right? So it could be, okay, you want to buy a house and you're just not sure, or you want to invest in the market. You want to invest in the stock market and you're just not sure. Think of the worst horrible situation that can happen. Think about it and then ask yourself, okay, what is the probability that that worst case scenario will happen? And when you go that deep into it, you'll realize that while yes, something can happen that's really bad, the chances of it happening are very slim. And what you can do, because we're talking about numbers here, is you can do statistics. So in the case of the stock market, I know a lot of fear from people is, especially for beginning investors is, you know, we've been in a bull market for a bit now, you know, and we've seen a lot of gains. And if you listen to some of the analysts, they're saying that there's going to be a big crash coming soon. And what will happen? What if it dissipates all your investments? So listen, that might very well happen within the next year or whenever. But you also should go back and look at the facts. Remember, we're talking about we have enough statistics over the time that the stock market's been running to know what has happened, what history has shown us with what's happened with the stock market. If you look at what happened after the Great Depression, even the people who bet on America right before Great Depression, so people who put money into the stock market, if they stayed in the market after that, they made their money back eventually. So for example, if you put $1,000 in the S&P 500 at the start of 1929, but then you continued to put money every year, even throughout the crash, you would have made back your money within seven years. Now that's obviously an extreme example. So in 1970s, when there was a recession, if you would have lost money at that start of the recession, but kept investing throughout that, you'd have made your money back in three years. And even the dot-com bubble, do you remember that? If you are old enough to remember the dot-com bubble, then if you'd have lost money in that, if you'd have kept investing, you'd have made your money back in five years. I'm getting these stats from a money.com article. So I will actually link that in the show notes so you guys can go look for yourself at this statistic, at these numbers, so you can see that regardless of even if there is a crash, as long as you're not willing to remove your money, then you won't lose money. Remember, with the stock market, with equities, you lose upon sale. So you will lose money as soon as you sell it. But even if you're losing or the stock is losing value, your investments are losing value, if you keep it in there, you won't realize that loss until you sell it. So if you're not going to need the money anytime soon, then then a big market crash like immediately or within the next year or so will not affect you unless you sell. The next question is from Alicia. She asks, and this is a Facebook group member, a journeyer, when is the right time to get a financial advisor? 
And then there was some follow-up questions on this from other people saying, okay, how do you evaluate the value of it? Do it yourself versus hiring a professional. And I actually really like this question because in the financial independence, financial freedom movement more, say, there's a lot of DIY, so do-it-yourself people because the point is you're trying to save money you're trying to increase that gap between your income and expenses and so a lot of people are just like okay I can do a lot of this myself especially if you go the route of just investing in index funds because really it's really just autopilot you're not really needing to pick and cherry pick stocks but I digress the point is that a lot of times in the community that we're in that yes, you they're not usually advocating for financial advisors. And I think that there's no right or wrong answer. It depends on your situation. So in a perfect world, everyone would have a financial advisor with whom we can check in like with once a month or call before making a big purchase or investment decision. Like who wouldn't want like someone who who just has that knowledge, who sees the bigger picture and can help guide you according to whatever financial plan they create for you. But realistically, financial advisors can be expensive. So it does depend on the amount of assets you have. And, you know, for a lot of people, you have to make sure that you're working with advisors that are fiduciaries, that are not making money off of their recommendations to you. They are really looking out for your best interest. So I think when it comes to if you're ready to have a financial advisor, just think about, okay, what is it that you're looking to do? Did you, are you dealing with a lot of money? So, you know, a couple hundred thousand, um, do you have, do you stand to lose a lot because you don't know anything? I would say in that case that it could perhaps benefit you to have a financial advisor. It also depends on how comfortable you feel with money and finances. So the people who are just, you know, I don't need a financial advisor. I don't need someone um, investing on my behalf or giving me investment advice. They might be very well-versed, very comfortable with um, the markets and understanding things. And even if they're not very well-versed or comfortable with it, they at least are comfortable enough to make like a decision. So in that case, no, like they don't necessarily need to hire one. They can do it themselves. They're building their knowledge. But if you really feel inadequate, which I really don't even like saying that word when it comes to money, because we are all adequate and we can learn um, whatever we need to 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 help ourselves. But it might be that depending on your portfolio size and your your need for help, so your understanding of what it is that you're holding you might want to talk to someone and it doesn't hurt to have someone look at your finances from a bigger level so looking at what your asset size is so what your portfolio is what you're looking to do and when you're looking to do it and then your ability to feel confident and what you're doing, I think all the all will lead up to do you need or do you want a financial advisor, right? I think it's almost of the line, same sense of like taxes. I mean, it's not necessarily maybe as technical as taxes because there's so many tax laws. There's so much going on. But like in my case, right, I used to do my taxes uh, myself. Well, we had people doing it 
and then we stopped. And for the last two years, I was doing my taxes. And I went through TurboTax. It was great because it gave me like step-by-step what I needed to do. And I was answering the questions and it seemed okay. But then as my tax situation got more complicated because, you know, I own uh, investment property, we own our house, then we had kids and now I have the business journey to launch. There's so much going on. And then with the retire early um, thought process that we are working towards, I wanted to make sure that investment wise, like we were doing okay and we were filing the right taxes. We we were taking, we were becoming tax efficient, as tax efficient as possible. So in my case, I hired a tax professional to do my taxes last year and they're going to do it probably going forward. And that's because I felt like I didn't know enough and my taxes were getting too complicated to a point where I needed someone who was an expert who I could trust that had my best interest to look over it for me and to help guide me along. So it's almost similar to then your money. If you feel like you want someone who you can trust, who's a fiduciary advisor, who can really, really help guide you to where you feel confident and comfortable and you feel like their fee, like you're, it's worth it. Like the, the headache or the extra work that they do on your behalf is worth it for the fee they charge. Now, remember, even if you hire someone, you should still be looking and understand what's going on because what you don't want to happen is someone come take over what you built or what you accumulated and you have no clue what's going on. Even with my taxes, even though I had someone else do it, we walked through it. I I understand it better. I'm learning as I go. So that's my take on if you need a financial advisor or not. This actual question is from Paulette again. (laughs) She says, how do I break the cycle of spending non-budgeted money? How do I incorporate family expenses when I'm trying to save for different things like scouts, swimming, ballet, and gym. I think with this, you have to really think, all right, why are you breaking the cycle of non-budgeted money? Does this mean that you don't have a budget or you have a budget, you're just not following it? Because, you know, you list a couple of experiences that you're probably doing for your kids or for yourself, and that's great. But you have to realize that you can't do everything like we would all I would love to like have my kids in everything (laughs) and I'd love to be able to do everything myself, whether that's vacations and um, joining a gym and eating out like there's all these things we want to do. Right. But then we need to prioritize how do these fit within my budget and. When you think of it like that, you begin to prioritize. I always say rank things. So rank your non-needed or your discretionary items. So the things that you don't need. So other than the things you need to live like a the rent or the mortgage and groceries and maybe your car expenses to commute to work outside of that all the extras. So that's cable. Cable cable is an extra. You don't need cable. You might need internet depending on your business and just this new age of this world. Everyone needs internet for the most part. But list everything that is not an essential part of your life to live and rank that. And I think when you rank that saying, okay, if everything went today, if I can only afford like one, two or three of these items out of my discretionary nice to have list, what would I pick based on my value system? So once you do that, you can start looking at it as the things when you realize you're overspending or you're forced to face a decision of do I 
spend money on this or not. You can look at your budget and say, well, this doesn't really want to fit my budget. And this is not even up high on the value chain for me. So I'm not going to spend the money on it. I'm going to just have to understand that value wise and budget and budget wise, it doesn't work right now. So I just think being conscious of what you value and being able to say no to yourself and your kids if need be is what you should do. Also, I think being proactive is um, very, very important. So if you do have events and things coming up, maybe they're not in the current month, maybe they're six months away. So you know that it's the summertime and there's something happening in the summertime you wanna spend money on. Start budgeting or put sinking funds together right now to pay for that. And a sinking fund basically is something where you are foreshadowing, forecasting and saving for that expense in advance. So let's just say in six months, you know you need to get new tires and new tires cost $600 and you need that in six months. You would put away $100 every month in your sinking fund to cover those tires. Now, I let you know that I don't budget, like I don't budget just for tires. I budget for the whole car. I budget for just things happening. And we do $75 a car um, per person. So we are a two car household. So in our sinking fund for our car maintenance, we budget $150 every month to the sinking fund meaning we just earmark $150. So whether we spend it or not, it gets earmarked and just accumulates as we go. So say month one, we we put in $150. We don't use anything. Month two, there's another $150. Because remember, every month we're putting away $150. So by month two, we have $300. Let's say nothing happens again. And we don't spend any money in that sinking fund. Well, and now month three occurs and we put in another $150. So right there, we have $450 in our car maintenance sinking fund. Let's say at month three and mid month, at the middle of month three, there's a car expense for something. Let's say it's oil change for $50. So if you remember, we had month one, month two, and month three we put away $150 each. And so by month three, we had $450. Now that $50 expense takes $50 out of that account. So it's $400 we have left. Now, if we move on to the next month, we're still putting in $150. So we have $400 left from months one, two, and three. And then now we're putting an additional $150 to get us back to $550. And that is kind of how the sinking funds work. You are forecasting expenses that are gonna need to you're gonna need to pay for in advance so that way when this thing comes up you're not stuck out there like oh my gosh what am I gonna do I don't have any money for it so it does take a lot to be proactive and then like I mentioned before values what are you valuing what's really working for your budget this question is for Alicia also from the Facebook group she asks is it possible to achieve fire by Buyer meaning financially independent, retire early by 57 or 60 years old if you're behind in retirement savings in your mid 40s? This is a great question because I got lots of young people listening to me. Enjoy your youth, guys. You're going to get old too. Sorry to tell you. <laughs> and I got, you know, older people listening to me. And so when I say, okay, invest now, it's early that for younger people is great because they can start investing in their 20s and they can reach their goals by not having to maybe invest as aggressively depending on what their goals are. 
But if you're a little older and maybe your 40s or even 50s, even late 30s, you might feel like, wow, I missed out on so much because I have all this debt maybe still and I now need to invest to get to retirement or maybe early retirement. How do you do that? So I want to let you know that all is not lost. There's still hope for you. And I and because I would hate for anyone listening to this, anyone that's older feeling like what's the point? Like they still they won't ever be able to reach their goals. That is not the case. Now, let's break down what retirement financial independence really means, because that's key here. Remember, financial independence and being able to have enough money to retire or to choose to work or not to work. Really, it's a function of a real strong one thing, but everything kind of leads into it. So let's focus on your expenses. The higher your expenses, the more you'll need accumulated to be able to quote unquote retire or reach financial independence. So if you earn a lot more money throughout that time, so let's just say you're starting at 40 and you want to reach financial independence in 20 years, then if you're able to accelerate your income within that time frame, you can possibly accelerate how much you can accumulate. Or if you are on the side of cutting back expenses, you'll need less. So you'll need to save less. And obviously, there's a combination of doing both. So let's take a 40 year old who literally has nothing saved for retirement. Let's say you have zero dollars, you're 40 years old, but you want to retire by 60. What would that take? Okay, so let's break down what it is that you need in retirement. So say you want to have expenses of $40,000. So say it's going to cost you $40,000 to live ongoing every year in a retirement Using the 25 times rule, so that is your annual expenses times 25 is just a rule of thumb that we use in a financial community that tells you about how much you'll need saved up in order to withdraw on that annual expense every year going forward without running out. So let's go back to the $40,000 a year. If you wanted to live off $40,000 a year using the 25 times rule, you would need $1 million saved up to be able to not run out of money. So that will be your financial independence like number. Let's say you needed more money, right? Let's say you needed $60,000 to live. So $60,000 a year, if you use the 25 times rule again, that's 60,000 times 25, you would need $1.5 million saved up too comfortably in your situation, draw down $60,000 a year, every year without running out in retirement. And let's say you want to go fancy, like you're fancy. (laughs) You want to live off $100,000 in retirement. Then you would need $2.5 million using the 25 times rule. So as you see, the more money you need to live, the more expenses, your annual expenses, the more you'll need to have accumulated. So let's take the midpoint example or actually let's take the let's take the more conservative example let's say you wanted to spend forty thousand dollars a year in retirement then you need a million dollars so how does one work up to have a million dollars starting from zero in 20 years let's do the math so assuming a rate return that means a rate of return how much you're getting in interest paid because of what you've invested 
per month. And we're going to use a monthly compounding, monthly accumulation calculation. Then let's say you're assuming a return of 8%. So you're assuming that you're getting 8% every month on the money you invested. So how much do you need to put in to get to the million dollars starting from zero? So according to this chart, which I'll also link in the show notes, starting with zero and over 20 years with an 8% assumed rate of return, you would need to invest $1,600.97 a month to reach $1 million in 20 years. Yes, I did say $1,697. And I know if you're listening, you're like, whoa, maybe like that is just so much. There's so much money to invest. But that's what mathematically at an 8% return is what you would need to invest every year for 20 years. And so you might be thinking to yourself, all right, I won't be able to accomplish that or I can't do that. Which is why, again, the whole thing about starting early is so important because that same person would have started 40 years ago. Let's say there's a 20 year old who wants to just work 40 years. They only have to invest $286 a month to get to that same $1 million over 40 years. But listen, we're not going to beat ourselves up for what we didn't do, what we didn't know. That is not what we're here to do. We're here to move forward and to help you reach your goals, right? So let's not focus on what you didn't do. We're focusing on what you can do now. So if that $1,697 seems unreasonable to you, then there are a couple of things you can do. One is within that 20 years, really drastically try to increase your income, whether that you work in a job that really propels you to make more because that's the trajectory of the job or you are building your skills you're side hustling you're starting a business whatever that is you need to increase your income the other thing you can do is recognize that okay maybe I won't be able to fully never work again like in the traditional sense meaning you won't be able to not ever work and get and and get to a million dollars in 20 years but what you could do and how you can look at it as you're going to invest the most you can so you're going to get on track by investing the most you can while still being able to live your life today but recognize that you can cover a gap so so let's say you need forty thousand dollars a year to live and by the time you're 60 but by the time you get there by the time you you started to invest you're only able to accumulate five hundred thousand dollars That extra $500,000 that you would need or to have accumulated, so that extra $20,000 a year that you need to live, you can maybe get a part-time job or still work full-time but doing a job you love that maybe pays less because you're not looking at it from a money standpoint that you need to make as much as possible anymore. So this is why it's like, you know what, you might as well start now. So if you're looking at this situation and saying, well, this is bleak and I won't be able to save as much as I need, Don't look at it that way. Look at it as you should still save as much as you can because no matter what, it's like shooting for the moon, but then you end up in the stars. You rather start and have something versus not doing anything. So let's say that same 40-year-old does nothing because they feel like they can't save anything. Then they end up with zero and they're 60 and they have to work and you know slave at a job that they hate and work 
unreasonable hours and be miserable because they don't have any options versus that same 40 year old who started who just started and did as much as they could by the time they did get to 60 they have something saved up that can provide them some sort of income and then now they can maybe look for a job that's not as stressful and still do the things they love because they have more options so when I when I tell you this it's like I think realistically you might listen to this and not be able to save as much as you'd like to get to your end point. But remember, the goal is not to just like not do anything right for the rest of our lives, even if we reach financial independence. It's to find and to do the things we love. And so if you're able to do that because you've saved up, you know, half of, of what it is that you need on an annual basis in retirement, that's better than nothing. And you should give yourself a big pat on the back and be proud of yourself if you get there. Because unfortunately, there are a lot of people who will never listen to this podcast, who will never get on track because they feel like, what's the point? So you don't want that journey. There is a point and it's better to do something than nothing. Okay, the next couple of questions are from Instagram. Amy asks, I'm 24 years old and I just finished grad school. I've been working full time now as an engineer and I'm debt free and I'm in a place where I can pay my credit card in full every month and I'm just trying to save as much as possible. My parents keep encouraging me to purchase a condo rather than rent. But my older brother who bought his first condo at 25 is telling me I should wait until I'm ready to get married and settle down before buying a property. Do you have any advice on what factors I should be considering when making a decision to purchase property? Good question. First of all, kudos to you for being so young and like in such a good place. You know, you have a really seems like well-paying job and you don't have any debt and you just finished grad school. That's amazing. I would first look at the motivation behind why you want to buy a house, because that is one of the most expensive decisions and purchases you'll ever make in your lifetime, especially depending on where you live that you'll make. So you want to make sure you're making it because you want to and not because of something that your parents want you to do or society tells you that you should do or whatever, right? It's something that you want to do. And I, I, I challenge you to really dig deep on is this, and there's no right or wrong answer for this, but is it because you want to have roots? So I'm a kind of person, for example, where I like having roots. I like knowing that I own something. And if I think I'm not going to be somewhere long, it, I find it really hard to commit to it. So, for example, for me, owning feels good because I know I own it. I'm going to be here for a while. Like I like looking at things long term. I'm a, I'm a commitment kind of girl. OK, <laughs> like I've been with my husband forever since I was like 19. We're 35 years old now. Like so just even my friends, like even my like my oldest friends I've known forever. I don't I don't know why I'm going on this tangent, but <laughs> It's all to say I'm a commitment kind of girl. I like long-term things. I think about things in the long term. So I like having roots and I like knowing that there's something that's mine that I own. That's one. So do you want it because you are a kind of rooted person? You like having roots. You want to feel like you own something. The other thing is looking at it as a true investment. So while I like owning, like in the the feeling of ownership, I also layer that on any decision when it comes to real estate, that it has to be also an investment. So I don't necessarily look at it as, oh, it's just emotional. I just want to own this. and I don't care what it costs. 
Like I care what it costs. I care about the return on it. I care about the appreciation of it. I care about the market. Like I care about the things that make this a good investment. So I would say, do you want to also, as part of the reason that you just want to have an investment, like you want to have something in where your money can grow if you decide to sell or refinance or whatever it is, if you want to tap into the equity of the house. And I actually encourage anyone who is looking at buying a house to, yes, there is an emotional part of it, but really to look at it, put your investment eyes on and to really look at it as an investment because you'll make better decisions that way you make better buying decisions also you said your older brother is telling you to wait until you're ready to get married and settle down which i can see uh i can see part of that because you you know you don't know where you're you're going to be long term um and maybe you'll move and maybe you and your potential husband will want something else something bigger who knows which is why i say if you're gonna buy something early especially earlier in your life where there's like you have your whole life ahead of you is to make it based more on an investment decision because like i i'm thinking back to when i bought my first property at 22 i put down um i as soon as i left college for my condo in dumbo and when I bought it, it was partly to own something, but it was majority because I knew it was going to be a good investment. Like I believed in the area. I knew that this was going to be like something where my money will would grow like my the money I put in would appreciate because this was such a hot place to live or it would be a hot place to live. Now, that was you know, that could have been a really bad investment decision. It could have went really left. It could have not happened that way, but luckily it did. But I had my investment glasses on when I was looking at this this decision. So I would encourage you that if you're looking at buying something to look at where, you, where you're looking at buying. So look at your market. Are you buying at the top of the market at, or at the lower end of the market? You know, how much are you spending? Can you really afford it? So if things go horribly wrong and the market crashes, are you willing to sustain whatever loss or, you know, whatever it is you lose from the transaction, the deal? Also, make sure you can fully afford it. So maybe you need uh, the down payment and closing costs if you're not going to do any of the special programs where they help you with that. But just make sure that you can fully afford whatever it is that you're buying. And then if you are looking at it as an investment, then, you know, look for homes that you have somewhere you can rent, maybe, you know, a basement apartment, maybe look at it as in terms of you are going to be able to house hack and have roommates to help you pay for the mortgage. So, you know, look at ways in which you're making this going to, it's going to be a smart decision for you. You say you listen to the podcast. I'm not sure if you heard these episodes yet, but go back to episode 11 with Chrissy and Bryce from Millennial Revolution. They actually don't believe in home ownership. They're from Canada and they, instead of buying a home, invested whatever money that would have been to buy a home in Canada. So they invested it instead of buying a home and they retired early and they're traveling the world. Then listen to episode 12 with Kendra Barnes from The Key Resource. On the other end of the spectrum, Kendra is building her wealth through real estate, specifically through real estate investing. And she runs Airbnbs on some in some of her investments. Like she is, for her, her real estate purchases are going to fund her wealth. They are funding her wealth now. And so I think those are really good contrasting episodes to give you some things to ponder when you think about if you should buy real estate or not. Okay, 
another Instagram question, and this might be the last one because this is actually taking longer than I thought. <laughs> so last question. It's Queen B asked, how can you cut down on expenses with a fixed income? Okay, so how can you cut down on expenses with a fixed income? I'm going to challenge you, Queen B, that there's no fixed income. Let's remove ourselves from the fixed income mindset. Now, I'm sure maybe there's a reason why you said that, but I'm going to say to you that I'm challenging you to think that there's always room to grow your income. And if there's not, because maybe you reached a ceiling at your current job, then there are things you can do outside of your job. You can side hustle. Uh, you can sell things you can you can I feel like there are ways in which you can always increase your income so yes you're saying cutting down expenses which is great if you need to but there's but so much you can cut down and at some point you also need to work on the other side of the equation so I always say when you're looking to cut down expenses to categorize what you're actually cutting down on so you know your mandatory versus non-mandatory expenses mandatory you can't get rid of those for the most part all the way, but you can maybe find creative ways to cut down on them. So a mortgage, if you live in a high cost of area of living, can you get a roommate? Can you house hack, etc.? If it's a non-mandatory expense, can you cut it out completely? Now, this is assuming that you have a fixed income and you cannot go any further, right? But if you do have some room to be creative and find ways to increase your income, I'd encourage you to do that. So I'd change that mindset about having just a fixed income and start to work from an abundance mindset that there's there's nothing fixed. The only thing that's fixed is what we what we fix in our own minds, which then limits our reality. All right, I think that is enough Q&A for today for this episode. I hope you enjoyed that and let me know what you thought. Let me know if you like this Q&A format. If you want to send in more questions, you can email me at jamila at journeytolange.com. You can also DM me questions on Instagram or Twitter or send your questions in via the Facebook community. Make sure you're joined at journeytolange.com dot com slash community or go to Facebook and type in journey to launch. If you want to actually hear your voice on the podcast. So if you want to record a voice recording, you can do that by going to journey to launch dot com slash voicemail and leave a voicemail. Once again, episode show notes are going to be at journey to launch dot com slash episode 51. And you can follow me on all social media as journey to launch. Okay, journeyers, until next week, keep on journeying.